With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. It's Lars. Thank you for checking out my podcast and have a great day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, You can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It is my favorite day of the week. It's First Amendment Friday and big breaking news on a Friday. Joe Biden, having fully weaponized his so-called Department of Justice, is now going to use it to respond to political opponents just like in any other banana republic. Let me get into that and the announcement made within the last few hours by Attorney General Merrick Garland. But first, welcome to First Amendment Friday. And you know the rules. Everything is fair game on First Amendment Friday. And as is always true every other day of the week, naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, I'll give you the details on it a bit later. But uh, the Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. So just within the last several hours, take a listen to Merrick Garland talking first about what he plans to do just three days after Donald Trump announced that he will be running for president. So in a banana republic, when the uh, established the establishment regime in charge sees any kind of uh, any kind of challenge from opponents or challengers, why they go out and they use what they can from the government to try to shut those challengers down. Here is Merrick Garland. Take a listen. I'm here today to announce the appointment of a special counsel in connection with two ongoing criminal investigations that have received significant public attention. The first, as described in court filings in the District of Columbia, is the investigation into into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote 
held on or about January 6, 2021. Now, let me tell you the first problem with this, and I'm glad to take naysayers on this, but Merrick Garland heads up the Department of Justice, and the FBI is part of the Department of Justice. And you know what the FBI concluded all the way back last year about whether or not Donald Trump had been the instigator of the riot that happened on the U.S. Capitol grounds and inside the U.S. Capitol building on January 6th? While the FBI came to the conclusion, we don't find any evidence that Donald Trump caused that to happen. Now, that's from Joe Biden's DOJ and FBI. And what else has been going on? Well, there are trials going on right now involving seditious uh, conspiracy. Now, what that is, is a conspiracy of people to try to overthrow the government. Seditious conspiracy. Now, there are six different defendants in that case. All of those cases are being put on by the Department of Justice, run by Merrick Garland. And what does every single one of those cases say? That private individuals decided to engage in riot, and perhaps even with the aim of trying to overthrow the U.S. government, they'll have to get a jury to decide that. But do any of those cases mention Donald Trump as the instigator? No, they don't. Do they name Donald Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator? No, they don't. So Merrick Garland is announcing today that his Department of Justice will name a special counsel to look into whether or not Donald Trump had anything to do with trying to interfere with the electoral college vote, the electoral vote uh, that, that named the new president, Joe Biden, uh, on January 6th except his FBI has already said Trump had nothing to do with it. He wasn't directly involved. And, uh, and the six cases he brought for seditious conspiracy, they also fail to say that Donald Trump is an unindicted co-conspirator or that he somehow touched this off. Their case in all of those other six cases is that private individuals decided to take on these actions and Donald Trump was not part of that. Now, second problem. Uh, but I'm going to let you hear a little bit more of what Merrick Garland had to say. Let's go to his second point that they're investigating, because that has to do with Mar-a-Lago. The second is the ongoing investigation involving classified documents and other presidential records, as well as the possible obstruction of that investigation, referenced and described in court filings in a pending matter in the Southern District of Florida. Now, that's Merrick Garland. So they're going to go after Donald Trump for the documents. Now, the documents raid happened some time ago. So why bring this today? Why announce the special counsel today? Well, guess what? They're announcing it today because Donald Trump just announced he's going to run for president. And I would bet you $100 that if Donald Trump had said, I'm not going to run for president in 2024, I'd be willing to bet this wouldn't be happening today. So what do we have? Like I said, in a banana republic, if you're the people in office right now, you use every part of the government to try to shut your opponents down. Now, I'm just old enough to remember, remember when the Democrats in Congress impeached a president for having the temerity to ask another country, in that case, Ukraine, for a criminal investigation of Hunter Biden? And you know what the Democrats immediately shouted? They said, hold on a second. That's Donald Trump trying to go after his political opponent, Joe Biden, on these false charges that Hunter Biden might have been up to something no good and that Joe Biden, the big guy, might have got a slice of that. Donald Trump is well aware of that, and he's well aware of the fact that there is considerable duplicity in a government. And I'll give you a list of some of the other cases that they're not doing right now while they're going after Donald Trump 
on what? J6, which the DOJ has already concluded Trump wasn't involved in, which Donald Trump already stood for uh, an, a second impeachment on that, and the Senate acquitted him of that charge. Donald Trump is well aware of it, and he talked about it Tuesday night when he announced uh, that he was going to be running for president. Listen to this. I say, why didn't you raid Bush's place? Why didn't you raid Clinton? 32,000 emails. Why didn't you raid Clinton's place? Why didn't you do Obama, who took a lot of things with him? We will dismantle the deep state and restore government by the people. Now, that's Donald Trump. No raid on top Democrat Party donor Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, from FTX, the cryptocurrency exchange, who may have just pulled off the biggest financial scam in world history. Do you hear Merrick Garland say we're going to be raiding Sam Bankman-Fried? No. How about a raid on Hillary Clinton, who confessed that she destroyed 30,000 public records during her time as Secretary of State, that she actually ran a separate email server so that documents that were required by law to be kept by the government about her time as Secretary of State, that none of those documents would be in the hands of the government. You think Donald Trump is obstructing things? You think Donald Trump hung on to some paperwork from his time as president or documents that he was fully capable of declassifying? Hillary Clinton confessed to destroying 30,000 public records. And she said, oh, I gave the ones to the uh, government that I was required to give. Those others were just wedding plans and yoga routines and maybe some recipes or two. No early morning raid on Hunter Biden for documents and evidence of the financial crimes and the pay-to-play that he engaged in on behalf of the Biden crime family when Joe Biden was vice president. Federal officials decided to wait until after the midterm election to leak the information about that raid on Trump in Mar-a-Lago. When we finally found out, you bet, it was a political hit job. But that story only came out after November the 8th. Just consider the implications that our politics and our DOJ has become weaponized on behalf of the Biden crime family and the Democrat Party. It's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Coming up, what happens when leaders turn into cowards because they don't want to face the public? I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that on First Amendment Friday. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias. Oh, on this First Amendment Friday, does the cowardice run deep in our so-called leaders here in the Pacific Northwest? Portland Mayor Feckless Ted Wheeler held a public hearing on his crazy plan to force massive homeless encampments on neighborhoods. The public who showed up to testify were understandably unhappy, and they said so out loud. Now, that's the part of the Constitution about redress of grievances and free speech and the right to peaceably assemble. Mayor Feckless must have missed that class when he was at Harvard. So the mayor locked the public out of the public hearing, and he went online. Harry Truman might have told Feckless, if you can't stand the heat, Teddy, get out of the kitchen. But then Truman was made of sterner stuff. 
He was he was a Democrat, just like uh, Ted Wheeler, but a different kind of Democrat. Truman dropped two atom bombs and ended a war. Feckless Ted can't even seem to stop the drug-addicted squatters from using your streets as their toilets. And then the North Clackamas School Board. They also chickened out on public testimony. Parents showed up to loudly object to porn in libraries and sex indoctrination of their kids. Funny how parents don't like that kind of thing. That board also went online, cowering behind their cyber wall. The Oregon legislature spent the last two years passing laws behind closed doors, doors closed to the public, despite the fact that the state constitution requires that if you're going to make law, you have to do it in front of the public. If it's not in front of the public, you can't pass laws. I think all three examples violate Oregon's public meetings law that requires public hearings to pass public laws. Watching it on TV just ain't the same. Now, I got this this email, and it came a little late today, so I thought I'd put it on from Mark Altus. Um, Lars, the news reported about a forest fire on the Oregon coast in the last couple of days. It was reported yesterday. News stated that dry conditions coupled with sustained winds resulted in tinder dry materials. What they failed to point out until today is the fact that the fire was on private timberland, was extinguished within 24 hours, and credit was given to easy access because of well-maintained logging roads, good forest management, and good coordination of local fire officials. Possibly the government could take a lesson from this event. Small fires attacked immediately seem to be put out faster than large fires that seemingly go unnoticed until it's far too late. Have a great weekend. Sign Mark. And then our question of the day. Will Oregon's badly written, likely unconstitutional ban on guns, that is, a de facto ban on gun sales, will it require an immediate special session of the legislature to fix it? And is it even fixable? As of last night, the Oregon State Police, which takes charge of background checks. When I bought some new guns a few months ago, the uh, backlog was about 3,000 people, but they knocked through about that many every day, so it doesn't take that long. As of last night, the backlog was 15,600. Now, on Sunday night, the backlog of background checks was 10,700. In other words, they're adding net to the backlog about 1,000 background checks a day. That's 1,000 people who are denied their right to buy a gun. And now the Oregon State Police is in total disarray, and people are all over them. The fact is they're ignoring the fact that when their troopers go off duty, they'll be breaking the law. Because the state law says that you can have a gun that holds more than 10 rounds of ammunition, but only while you're working as a cop. When you're an off-duty cop and you're driving home with that Glock on your, on your hip, you're breaking the law. They're going to ignore that as well. I think they're going to have to have a special session of the Oregon legislature before Peter Courtney leaves. It's going to be a tough climb, so just about anything could happen. I want to get to your calls in a moment, but first let's do today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. Well, I'm going to give today's Daily Grill to the final decision that apparently came this week. U.S. regulators, as it's reported by the Fish Wrapper, approved a plan yesterday to demolish four dams on a California river and open up hundreds of miles of salmon habitat that would be the largest dam removal and restoration project in the world when it goes together. 
It's the Lower Klamath River dams. The biggest milestone for this $500 million demolition project. The tribes wanted it. Environmental greenies wanted it. The project, they say, would return the lower half of California's second longest river, not the upper half, of course. So when they say it'll become a free-flowing river again, well, at least half of it. Well, if half of it is free-flowing, it ain't free-flowing. But here's the more serious piece of this and the reason it gets today's grill. The destruction of four hydroelectric dams at a time when we're running short of electric power. The government is pushing electrification of homes and transportation. They want to ban natural gas for heat or cooking or anything else. And wind and solar are not meeting our needs. And now we're going to celebrate the removal of four dams. Doesn't make any sense to me. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. And the MEI Group is currently hiring, paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. The MEI Group.com. Bennett writes in, Lars, I had a motivated discussion regarding 114 with Master Gunsmith Wayne York, Oregon Gunsmithing. During our discussion, we concluded we can fight 114 with a strong voice and a wallet rather than a smattering of individuals complaining that 114 is illegal. As of this morning, the 114 results show that 50.73% yes and 49.27% no. In other words, a difference of 27 thousand votes out of almost 1.9 million cast made the difference signed bennett it is first amendment friday your phone calls and emails from all over the pacific northwest are welcome on the radio northwest network let's go to ron in tacoma listening on kvi hey ron what's on your mind well i'm a little uh, perturbed this morning so i wake up lars this morning and i see on the news uh that the uh the uh well, I'll just be blunt about it. The uh, Democrat Party, the party of uh, victimization and blackface, yep. seems to be the beneficiary of this uh, ridiculous uh, money that came from cryptocurrency. And guess whose mug came up on the screen of one of the top ten people to benefit? It would Let be me guess. Patty Murray. Patty Murray? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to know, when's the recall election? Well, that would be nice to see. I don't know if you can actually recall a U.S. senator under Washington state's laws, but she should have to have some kind of explanation. She took this dirty money. There were a lot of people who are losing money right now. Not all of them are big cryptocurrency billionaires like uh, Sam Bankman-Fried used to be. He's no longer a billionaire. I think he's, he's up to his neck in red ink at this point. But they're still trying to figure out whether or not all the people who put their trust in FTX are going to get anything for it, and Patty Murray should explain what she's going to do. Is she going to give the money back? Is she going to make amends in some way? It's important to find that out. Glad to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. Our Twitter poll question, should Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, be treating his employees this way? And is he asking too much to tell his employees to work in a hardcore environment? We'll get to that and your phone calls and emails. And we'll talk with the head of the Oregon Firearms Federation about the unconstitutional measure 114 and the chaos it leaves behind. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on First Amendment Friday. I wanted to pick Kevin Sterrett's brain. Kevin heads up the Oregon Firearms Federation, the founder and executive director of that group. 
and they fought hard against ballot measure 114 to the extent that even in a liberal state like Oregon, 1.9 million votes cast and the difference between yes and no was just 27,000 ballots. So file that away for the next time somebody tells you that their vote does not count. It could have counted this time because total turnout was only just over about half of all the registered voters. Kevin, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Lars. Now, I promise to respect the fact that you said, I only know what I know, and I don't know anything more than that. Let's start with this. You have the voters pass a law, which, thank God, the Northwest states have voter initiatives and referenda that allow the people to make law. But as I understood it, you vote on November the 8th, and the law goes into effect 30 days after it has been approved by voters. Doesn't that happen after the vote has been certified, which doesn't happen till the 15th of December? Well, you know, the concept, first, I, I would take issue of the beauty of ballot measures under the circumstances here, because well, these yeah. measures don't get read by people, and that's why we have what we have. But you, you, the ballot, the ballots are supposed to be enacted 30 days after they are certified by the voters. And at one time, we assumed that meant Election Day. But now, we're in Clackamas County. They're still counting ballots. They're still opening ballots. So how the hell can these things be certified? But the Secretary of State, Shemaya Fagan, said, no, we're doing this December 8th, which is 30 days from November 8th. November 7th. And so now what we have is a situation of utter chaos where the police don't know what to do and the government doesn't know what to do and the gun store owners don't know what to do. But a lot of people are getting seriously shafted and a lot of people are going to lose their businesses and their life savings because of some frauds in Portland who claim to be Christians. And there are going to be people, including this this uh, Mark Knutson, this pastor who pushed it. He's been invited on the show any number of times. We've also asked the OSP to come on and explain because, Kevin, I thought one of the most extraordinary things was when the Daily Dead Fish Wrapper, you know, Therese Bottomley's newspaper, uh, says Oregon State Police now believe that Measure 114 goes into effect earlier than its drafters thought based on advice from the Secretary of State. So we've got a police, a, a supposedly professional police agency said, we're not quite sure when this law goes into effect. So they go to a non-law enforcement uh, person like the Secretary of State, the very political Secretary of State, and say, hey, what do you think? And she says, I well, think it goes into makes, effect on she the makes, She makes those rules. And, and the fact is that the drafters of this, of this atrocity made it clear they had no idea who would take care of, of working all this out and basically said, we made a mess, you go clean it up. So now they're saying, don't worry, it'll be fine. And others, other of their spokesmen are saying, nope, it's up to the police to fix this. And I can tell you the state police don't know what to do because they've got thirteen to 15,000 people waiting in line to be approved for something that they're supposed to have an answer on in 30 minutes. So we're talking weeks or months delay. The state police, in my estimation, are violating the law. The people who are trying to exercise their rights are getting screwed. And the business owners have no idea what to do because they don't know if they're allowed to transfer the guns or if six weeks from now they're going to have to give back literally millions of dollars in money to customers and then return guns to distributors because they can't sell them because there's a permit system that no one can comply with. And by the way, uh, before we get to the effect it has on police, the latest count I got from my friend Carl Durkheimer at Northwest Armory, as of this morning, it was 15,500 people who are sitting in the backlog for approval. The number on Sunday was was about 10,700. So the backlog is growing by 1,000 people a day. By the time we get to December 8th, we could literally have twenty five or 30,000 people standing in line. And on that day, uh, I've had this question more than once, but and I've given my audience my, what I think is the right answer. 
So if on the day that they that the secretary of state's opinion says uh, this goes into effect on December the 8th, um, what happens on December the 9th when somebody is told you've now passed the background check for the gun you bought a month ago? Uh, come in and pick it up. Can the gun store give them the gun on the uh, on the 9th of December if there is no permit system and there's no class system that's been set up by the state police to accomplish that? Is is the transfer legal because it's grandfathered in because it happened? The purchase happened before the law or is it forbidden because the law now says you can't have it? My opinion is, and that's all it is, is my opinion, is that they won't get, the transfer won't be permitted because at the time they come in, if it's been more than 30 days, if, if it's 31 days and they get an approval from the state police, they have to start the process all over anyway. So the person who comes in to pick up the gun on the 31st day or the 40th day now gets back in the queue, has to fill out another 4473, and the background check process begins all over again. So I see no way that it would be legal. Now, that doesn't account for what happens if the legislature decides, oh, we're going to go fix this. They don't come into session until the 15th. This thing goes in, into effect 15th well over January. a month. The, the 17th of January. I'm or sorry. 17th the, of January, yeah. They, 17th of January, which means this thing's been in effect for well over a month before that. Unless they come up with something else, like, oh, let's have a special session, and then I guarantee you things will be a, a mess on biblical standards. It'll just be unbelievably chaotic. And right. that's why it's essential that some judge look at this and say, no, this is nonsense. It can't go on. Now, Kevin, the other effect, and I don't, th- I think people ignored this, is that for police, not just state police, but local police, the law has a carve out that says a cop can carry a gun. Otherwise, it'd be stupid. But off duty, if a police officer or say an Oregon state trooper who carries a Glock that probably holds most of them that the police carry, c- carry more than 10 rounds, he gets off duty, clocks out, and he's driving home in his car with that pistol on his hip. Is he breaking the law? Well, I think he is, but on the other hand, no one's really certain, because if he's driving home in his police car, he can still be asked to do things, he can still be pulled up. But what happens when he gets home? The fact is, is when he goes back to work, he drives his police car back to work, or what if he's driving his private car? State troopers frequently take police cars home, but not always. What if any cop driving to work with his duty equipment, if he's in possession of one of those magazines, is now facing a year in jail? Now, I don't expect the cops to arrest each other, but they are, in fact, liable for that. That's the insanity of all of this nonsense, and there's a million other things. I mean, one of the things that this measure says is, oh, you can keep those magazines if they are on the property of the registered owner. That doesn't even mean anything. Register, what's registered and to who? Magazines there is no aren't registry registered. For- I mean, I own plenty of guns, and none of them is registered. So, well, it's so what the is guns. a registered they owner? Mag- the, they want the magazines to put the registered owner of the magazine. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours.
Visit 1031exchange.com. Magazines, that makes no sense. And then they refer to statutes that don't exist. And there's half a dozen other, uh, other features of this measure. Like, they have a definition for loaded, you know, when they're talking about magazines. But the definition they give is a statute that refers to loaded firearms. So clearly this garbage has to be cleaned up. But is it going to be cleaned up in time to save hundreds of mom-and-pop businesses across the state who are going to be crushed because of these cowards in Portland who don't give a damn about anyone else in their state except the agenda that's pushed by the millionaires who funded them? And at this point, uh, the, the time likely to get this into court and get a federal judge to act is, is going to be months, is it not? Well, okay, I'm going to tell you my opinion. I'm not a lawyer. I believe we can do that. We can request an injunction much quicker than that. What the, how long it takes the courts to make a decision, I can't say. But clearly they are capable of making a decision very quickly. And now it becomes a matter of here's the, here's the danger. No matter what we do, we get in front of a judge who we can't control, and we get a judge who's politically motivated to how to finally craft our arguments. They can just throw it out. But we don't have a choice. I'm hearing from dealers every second here who are just panicking because they're saying, I'm going to lose everything my family and I have built. And so we are just moving as quickly as possible. But frankly, at this point, I have to turn this over to attorneys, and that's what we've done. And by the way, uh, when, when those guns become illegal to sell in Oregon, all they can really do, I guess, is transport them out of state and, and, and well, I guess, fire sale them to somebody else. That is Kevin Sterrett, the executive director of the Oregon Firearms Federation. I'd be glad to hear naysayers on this. I'd be glad to hear somebody say, no, this is a sensible measure, because it doesn't seem that even the people enforcing it know how it's to be enforced when the Oregon State Police is asking the Secretary of State for advice on when a law goes into effect, and their own cops may be violating the law on December the 9th. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network, where we endeavor to serve with honestly provocative talk for Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Our Twitter poll today, and I decided to go a bit outside the Northwest, although Elon Musk and Twitter do penetrate the Pacific Northwest to some extent. Uh, hundreds of Twitter employees apparently quit their jobs yesterday after the new CEO, Elon Musk, gave workers an ultimatum which actually sounds like simply every job I've ever had in my life. Commit to a hardcore work environment or be fired. And as one of my listeners uh, put it this way, it's truly a pleasure watching Elon Musk torment the Twitter people. It seems he's doing these firings in a way to maximize the trauma. They never imagined they'd be torn apart limb by limb by a masochistic boss. Anyway, I look forward to the morning news every day because of the new accounts uh, the, of crisis at Twitter. It's like getting a new episode for free every day. Uh, don't feel bad for them. These are the very people who fact-checked their own new boss, tried to subdue him under the same Orwellian regime of terror that they imposed on all of us. Twitter set the gold standard for every social media platform. They asked for this. Signed, Kia. Uh, today's Twitter poll is found at Lars Larson Show and brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go. Uh, let's go first to Philip. Hey, Philip, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. Hey. You guys are talking a lot about the ballots and stuff in Arizona being maybe crooked or corrupt. Uh, yep. My my question to you is: I was told that the ballots in Oregon are barcoded on the outside of the envelope, 
Democrat they are. or Republic. Yep. And I also heard that there was a bunch of um, envelopes stuck in a box and set aside because they said they came in too late and did not um, count as a vote. That is probably true because, Philip, they made a change to the law, and it said you can count a ballot that comes in after December, after November 8th if it is postmarked on, on or before November the 8th. So if a ballot came in uh, on, say, not Tuesday, but, say, Thursday, if it was postmarked on, December, on November the 8th, then they would count that one. If it was postmarked on November the 9th, then they would not count that one. As for the barcode, as I understand it, that barcode has a whole lot more than just party affiliation. It has more information on it, and I think most voters should be very suspicious of why their ballot is marked on the outside with a machine-readable code, which the average person can't read unless they put a reader on it that has information on it about the voter it was sent to. I think that's dead wrong. Let's go to Larry. Hey, Larry, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hi, I've got a question about the 114 law. If I have a concealed carry permit, am I still going to be allowed to carry as long as the the gun holds no You're you're fading out on me, Larry. I think your cell phone's going bad, but I got most of his. What he's asking about is if he has a concealed carry permit, can he carry the gun? Uh, if one for one one fourteen goes into effect, yes. If you if you have something that holds ten rounds or less or fewer, uh, then you can still carry. Does that answer your question? Well, if I can't, my clip carries or holds ten, and I have one in the chamber, is that going to be illegal? Well, and that's a good question. I think the lawyers are going to have to answer that because what the law says is capable of holding more than ten. So. If you have one that holds 15 rounds, but you only put nine in, it's still capable of holding more than 10. So the question is, will they count it as the number of rounds in the magazine, not a clip, but a magazine, or will they count it as the number in the magazine plus one in the pipe? And and I think you could probably go either way with that one, and I figure they're probably going to have some court cases about that. Let's go to Rick and Eugene. Hey, Rick, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network and on uh, KPNW. What's on your mind? Thanks for all you do, Lars. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't know hardly anything. Well, that's very nice of you to say so. Anyway, I, I, I just wanted to talk about that despicable human being, Merrick Garland. Every, every day you think it's bad, and the next day it, it gets worse again. True. And you're just thinking, we're, we're never going to escape this. Well, Somewhere, we may. Unless that we, guy in two too, years with a new life. president, we can escape it. Yeah, but then there'll be Merrick Garland and his piece of crap cronies that are coming along and just pushing that agenda all the time that it's poor old Trump and Trump's uh, Trump's the... uh, That's what they're going to do for the next two... You're right, that's what they're going to do for the next two years. But the minute we get a new president in Donald Trump, or you know, even a new president, anybody other than the Democrats, Merrick Garland is history. They're going to send him packing right away. Uh, He'd be... I would think he'd be at the top of the list for a new president to fire. There's almost, well, there there is something that the Congress could do. The new Republican Congress could hold hearings. They could call Merrick Garland up. They could put him under oath. They could ask him questions. And when and if he lies to them, they can refer to the Department of Justice, which would be kind of comical, to have the (laughs) Congress ask Merrick Garland's Department of Justice to, uh, to, uh, 
indict Merrick Garland for lying under oath for perjury in front of Congress. But it, it would be an interesting situation to be in. What does Merrick Garland, what does the Department of Justice do if the guy lies under oath the way, say, Secretary Mayorkas has lied about the border yeah. under oath? And, and then does the DOJ say, we are not going to indict the boss? Or do they say, no, we have to take some action. His crime is clear. I have a feeling they could do that. And I think Merrick Garland has lied more than once under oath to Congress, and I think he richly deserves to be impeached. Whether the Republicans will have the guts to do it or not, that's another matter. It's First Amendment Friday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's the Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. We'll do that in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, naysayers always go to the head of the line. If you disagree with my point of view or what I've been saying about a subject, we're glad to put you first. Just come with your best arguments, maybe a few facts, a little bit of logic, and a willingness to answer a few of my questions in aid of an objection. Now, I'm glad to have you with me. Uh, I want to introduce Dr. Greg Nye. Now, he's been on the program before, and one of the reasons I like talk to do- talking to Dr. Nye is that lately it seems that if you talk to anybody in the medical establishment, especially when it comes to COVID or SARS-CoV-2, whichever you prefer talking to about it, um, they'll, they'll tell you the company line. And in fact, they'll even tell you in private, well, I don't necessarily agree with the company line, but I have to take the company line because if I don't, they might just pull my license. And they have done that to a number of medical doctors who've chosen to break from orthodoxy. It almost makes me think of those times when, uh, you know, the, the conventional wisdom was that the universe revolved around the earth. And if you said otherwise, uh, they'd kill you or they'd at least silence you one way or another. Dr. Nye refuses to be silenced. And he's done a couple of new papers, and he pointed out to me, Lars, these are pretty technical papers. So, Dr. Nye, welcome back to the program. And let me start with this question. I'll invite you to give us a layperson's explanation of what you've developed in those papers. Dr. Nye is a naturopath as well as a, uh, he specializes in naturopathic oncology, treatment of cancer. Um, doctor, uh, is the long-term effect of the COVID shot which people insist on calling a vaccination, even though it doesn't behave like a vaccination, are the long-term effects turning out to be worse in some ways than COVID itself? Uh, Well, first, I want to say thanks for having me back on here. And um, the the long-term effects of these shots are, in many ways, unknown at this point. And 
so we have this, what we're calling now long COVID, and that's beginning to be understood better and has a very large neurological component that people are experiencing. In the papers that we're writing, we're really, it's a series of papers that each one is proposing some potential long-term consequences that we need to be very much aware of and investigating. And uh, unfortunately, the predictions that we were making in our earlier papers are now panning out. And the fear is that the prediction that we're making in our current papers will again be panning out in the future. And in fact, when we look at just the epidemiological evidence, it looks like that's beginning to happen. Now, of course, there's no way at this point to be drawing causal associations between the mechanisms that we're putting into these papers and what is actually manifesting in the population. But we are seeing, you know, initially the first wave was really mainly cardiovascular, and that was predictable. We knew that this spike protein was incredibly inflammatory for the endothelial cells of the vascular system. And the next wave that we had suggested in a paper we published earlier this year was that cancers would be dramatically increasing, potentially, Uh because of the way that these shots were kind of suppressing cancer surveillance networks within cells. And in fact, for the people who are extracting the data out of the CDC's data, the CDC is not making this stuff easy to access, but there are people who are combing through the data and finding that, in fact, there are dramatically more diagnoses of any kind of cancer that are happening in the, since the introduction of these vaccinations. And now our most recent papers, two recent papers, are, are suggesting that neurological issues are going to be a prominent, a prominent um, co- potential, I always want to say potential, consequence of these shots. Now, it is possible that infection itself could have these same ramifications. It's just less likely because of the way that they have genetically modified this RNA that it's going to stay in the body much longer than would a natural infection stay in the body. Even though, even though the studies I've seen, Doc, and I'm a lay person, but I look at them and they, they appear to show that the so-called vaccine has some effect initially and it fades off. And, and infection has some effect, uh, immunity effect initially, and it fades off. But if you ask which one lasts longer and which one is, is more powerful, if you will, in, in pushing back any new infection, the natural immunity seems to be better than what you get from the so-called vaccine. Is that, fair? Is that backed up by what you've been finding? I think that's a, a completely accurate way of describing it, yes. Um, there's the potential that in the very early, uh, a few months after a vaccination, when the immune system is really annoyed Um, and is most robust, it's possible that in those few months that there is some improved protection by the shot versus natural immunity, but that is a very quickly passing phenomenon. And in fact, they have done studies. The reason the studies say that they don't even call you vaccinated until two weeks after you've had your shot, the excuse for that is to say that, well, the shot doesn't provoke that immune response until two weeks after the shot, so we're not going to call you vaccinated for those two weeks. But people who have looked at this data can see clearly that people are actually more susceptible to an infection in the two weeks after their shot than someone who has not gotten a shot at all. More, more so, susceptible, just so we're clear, not just to COVID infection, but any kind of infection. 
Is that fair to say? Well, actually, I don't. I can't. I don't know that. I don't because I think the only data that we have access to are whether or not they're being diagnosed with COVID in those two weeks in these studies that they're tracking. Now, of course, my belief is that yes, because again, that paper we did at the early early part of the year about suppression of innate immunity, and it's hard to overstate how how incredibly consequential it is to suppress innate immunity. It impacts our ability to resist any kind of viral infection, not just SARS, but any kind of viral infection, and then also how that then kind of suppresses cancer surveillance. And so- All right. Now, let me ask you about cancer while we've got time, Doc, and I, I have to keep this quick too, but um, sure. can, can you explain to all of us lay people, including yours truly, how is it that the shot might prime you or make you more susceptible to cancer? Is there a way to understand that mechanism? Why does it make your body more susceptible? Absolutely. So the, I think maybe the one that's most in the public mind, there's a set of cancer genes that are called BRCA1 and 2. These are yeah. the breast cancer genes. And most people are familiar with BRCA, I think, maybe, because um, they get a lot of publicity. So there are various systems within cells that are constantly preventing that cell from turning into a cancer cell. That's what BRCA, that's what the BRCA gene does. And if there's a mutation in BRCA, that means it's not doing its, its prevention of that cancer transition, and thus the, the cells are much more likely to become cancer cells. So imagine five different systems within the cell that are all preventing the cell from turning into a cancer cell. If you do something to that cell that shuts down one or five of those systems, you're making it much more likely that that cell will transform into a cancer cell. That makes sense to me at all. We're going to put the links up to Dr. Nye's new studies that are out there. I don't have the technological uh, expertise to be able to understand them, and that's why we bring Dr. Nye on. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. Always glad to take your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. I want to talk about something the Biden White House is doing that I think is perfectly predictable in one way, but also completely bizarre in another way. And it has to do with Joe Biden's plan to spend $1 trillion of your tax dollars to pay off the bad debts of idiot kids who went out, and these are now all young adults, they went to college, they borrowed huge amounts of money in some cases, and they got degrees that were not worth what they paid to get them. Now, that's been my definition of why most people go to college. Now, if you're extraordinarily wealthy, or your mom and dad are very wealthy, and, and, and they say, oh, I want my son or daughter to go off, and they can get whatever degree they want. You know, I've always used the Master of Fine Arts as an example. That may be unfair uh, because an MFA, I'm sure, to some people is very valuable. But it basically qualifies you to be an artist, which is typically not a high-paid profession. So if you borrow a ton of money to get an MFA and you become an artist, you're probably going to be one of those starving artists for a long time unless you happen to strike gold and become the next Picasso or the next Andy Warhol. Uh, Or you can get one of those degrees that ends in studies, women's studies, ethnic studies, this studies, that studies. Most of those don't land you any kind of job except one where you say, would you like a straw in your latte? 
uh, that's how those tend to work out. So if you borrowed sixty or a hundred thousand dollars to get that degree, uh, that's an idiot decision. Now, if you've decided that you want a degree in something exotic, and you don't really care whether it leads to a good job, that probably means uh, maybe you've got a trust fund from mom and dad or grandma and grandpa, and you don't have to worry about paying the rent. But here comes old Joe, and he says, "I'm going to forgive the debts, uh, at least a part of the debts." of as many as 44 million people. And I'll tell you that as I'm standing here today, 26 million Americans who took out a loan, signed on the dotted line, went to college, they got the fun of college, they got the education of college, and now they say, I don't wanna pay the bill that I racked up. 26 million people have already said they want somebody else to pay off their debt. And I've pointed out to you that functionally, the debt ends up being paid off by a population, the U.S. population, of which 70% of the population never went to college, didn't get a college degree, didn't even get the opportunity if they wanted a college degree. So you're saying you want, you got the degree, you got to have the fun of going to college and the tailgaters and the football football uh, games and, and, the, and the fraternities or sororities. You got to have all of that and you racked up a bill. And now you're gonna make somebody who never got that opportunity pay the bill. Does that make sense? That's question number one. Well, today the Biden White House is begging the US Supreme Court to allow Joe to spend a trillion dollars without any authority whatsoever from the United States Congress. Now, that might strike you as strange. It certainly struck me as strange uh, because I said, hold on, I've read the US Constitution. And it says the president can't spend any money on his own say-so. If the president wants to spend one thin dime, he has to go over to Capitol Hill and say, will you pass a law and appropriate the money? The thing that appropriates money out of the public treasury is a law, just like the laws on environment or, uh, or, or uh, uh, capital crimes or anything else. Those laws passed by Congress include laws that allocate money out of the public treasury. And the founders of this country, who are geniuses, unlike some of the idiots who are running it now, the founders said, if you want to spend money, you have to go to the people's representatives first in the House and ask them for the money. And if they say yes by a majority, then it goes to the Senate. And if they say yes by a majority, then you can take that bill to the president and he can sign it. Now, Joe Biden may not actually know what he's doing. I would suggest that he does not know what he's doing, because a couple of weeks ago, when somebody was asking him about whether or not his student loan debt repayment scheme or scam, uh, whatever you want to call it, whether or not that was was going to be a, a thing, because there had already been a couple of federal judges that had already struck it down, said you can't do this. And Joe's feeling more than a little bit desperate because he wants this money to be shoveled out. Most of the news media is saying this is half a trillion dollars, $500 billion. But it is, in fact, if you look at all the loans it might apply to, it comes closer to about $1 trillion. And if you say, well, does the Congress have an extra $1 trillion? The answer is no, they don't. They're already spending not only every dime that comes in from taxes and fees and everything else, they're spending a trillion or two after that, above that. They are spending beyond their means like a 20-year-old with his or her first job. So they don't have the money. So this means this is going to be debt. 
They're going to take debt from people who went and got a worthless college degree. Some degrees are worthwhile. Some are not. They're going to take the debt from people, 44 million of them potentially, who got a worthless college degree and now don't want to pay the bill. And they're going to transfer that debt to you and your kids and your grandkids on and on. You know, because because who knows when this money will ever be paid back, but it will add to the massive debts that are already owed by the federal government. Well, Joe Biden has seen a couple of federal judges already say, nope, nope, we're not going to let you do this. And the answer, the reason, you know, you don't have to be a lobbyist or a member of Congress or a lawyer to understand why. Is there a law that allows the president to say, we're going to forgive your college debts? And the answer is, no, there is not. Now, there was a law that Joe Biden is trying to use. It was passed in the year or two after the 9-11 terrorist attacks when Congress said, you know, we've got young men and women who are serving in uniform under fire from the bad guys in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've also got some first responders like firefighters and paramedics who were either killed or grievously wounded uh, in the terrorist attacks of 9-11. And we can't very well tell those people, we're going to put you in the poorer house because you can't pay your student loans. So they allowed the HEROES Act to be passed. And I think it was a sensible thing to do. I mean, for goodness sake, you send somebody to Iraq, he or she is doing exactly what you ask them to do as a member of our military. And then you say, by the way, yo, a whole... With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Full ton of money on your student loans. Start making payments, and if not, we're going to come after you. And you say, hold on, I'm, I'm sitting over in Iraq getting shot at by bad guys, and you want me to pay my student loans? So Joe Biden said he wants to extend that law to those people. It doesn't work. The law did not apply to somebody who went out and got uh, this degree or that degree, uh, this studies or that studies, Master of Fine Arts, whatever it happened to be, and then suddenly decided, I don't want to do that, or I can't find a job that pays enough that I can comfortably pay this money back. So Joe Biden has now gone hat in hand today to the U.S. Supreme Court and asked them for an emergency order that allows this debt repayment plan to go forward. I hope that the Supreme Court looks at it because I think it won't be hard at all. Even the liberals on this court have to look at this crazy plan and say the law does not give Joe Biden authority, not in any way whatsoever, to spend a trillion dollars of the public's money to pay off bad debts from students who got worthless college degrees. And because of that, they're going to tell the president no. And it won't be the first time. In fact, it might not even be the 10th time that the federal courts have told Joe no. 
It's First Amendment Friday. Your phone calls and emails are welcome. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I wonder if someday somebody will make a list of all the young women who were cheated out of the opportunities that they could have had, but for the political correctness and wokeness of today's society. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. And I want to ask this question. Are we likely to see the issue of transgender men, that is biological men, competing in women's sports, going all the way to the Supreme Court? And are we going to see young women who want to compete in sports? And I'm talking about biological women, real women, uh, getting some kind of victory because it appears that the federal courts, well, they're not exactly hewing to the kind of wokeness and PC nonsense that has led to see biological men dominating biological women in women's sports competition. Jen Cabani joins me now, who's an editor with The College Fix. Jen, welcome back to the program. Hey, Lars. Good to be here. We did get a win on this, didn't we? And can you describe that for my audience? We got a win. And I want to say there is some positive news out there. You know, I know we had a rough election day, but we had a couple of wins, and this is one of them. Um, a, district, a district court ruled that they, you cannot define sex um, in Title IX as meaning gender identity or sexual orientation. So that's huge. That's really, really important because that not only protects doctors who uh, don't want to lose funding if they refuse to do what's called gender-affirming surgery, but also that protects uh, young women, young female athletes who don't want to compete against biological men who just, you know, who think they're girls or want to say they're girls, but have larger lungs, um, larger bones, have benefited from testosterone, etc. No, and in fact, the funny thing is, I've been around long enough, Jen, I can remember when the big controversy in sports was when athletes would take some kind of enhancement. Uh, for women athletes, sometimes that enhancement could be testosterone. And the rule was, you can't have testosterone in you because that gives you an unfair advantage. And yet today, we've got almost the opposite argument that you could have benefited from a decade, sometimes close to two decades, of growing up with testosterone in your body and then say, hey, I'm going to take some drugs for a year or two. I'm going to go out and compete against women. And like Leah Thomas in swimming, I'm going to win all day long and I'm going to beat women and they're not going to have a chance competing against me. And what you said earlier is right. This is ultimately definitely headed to the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different competing cases. The one that we just ruled that Title IX and definition of sex does not include gender identity uh, came from a, a lawsuit out of the District Court for the Northern District of Texas. But there's also some pending lawsuits filed by female athletes in Connecticut and other states. So this is definitely one of those ones that are ultimately going to be headed for the Supreme Court. I hope so, and I hope they pick the right one, and I hope they don't choose, you know, sometimes the Supreme Court will say, we're going to have a narrowly tailored decision, you know, that, that then doesn't apply, you know, across the board. Uh, whereas sometimes the Supreme Court, with Obergfell, the gay marriage one, uh, they decided, okay, gay marriage is okay everywhere in America, and it began happening literally the next day. You know, and you say, OK, can we have one of those decisions so that you say you can't have biological men competing against biological women because it is inherently unfair? 
Yeah, and you're right. The the right case needs to get before the high court. This one might be it. This is Meese versus Becerra. And even though it was filed by two doctors who say they shouldn't be, you know, forced to perform gender-affirming surgeries is what it's called, it also uh, revolved around the idea that Title IX can't be interpreted uh the sex can't be interpreted as gender identity, which is going to also affect the argument that would require female scholastic sports to be open to men who identify as women. So that's why it's kind of all-encompassing, and it might be a good case going forward for us. I'm talking to Jen Cabani, who's an editor with a College Fix, and, and that's the other part of this. You know, Jen, in a lot of cases, when they say, what does this law actually mean? I mean, in the case of the Constitution, they'll go back and say, well, what did, they, what did the founders say about it in the Federalist Papers? And in the case of most legislation, they'll go back and say, well, when they wrote this law, what did they mean by this term or that term? If you go back to the origins of Title IX, you know, half a century ago, pretty close, and say, you know, when they said gender, you know, when they said gender, did they mean if a guy comes in and says he's really a girl, uh, that, that, that that's a definition of gender? Is there any way, in any way, shape, or form, could you say that the legislative history uh, or the regulatory history of Title IX uh, meets that? This is exactly, you, you made a, such a great point, because Title IX was passed, approved, to protect female athletes who deserve to compete on a fair and level playing field. I mean, literally, the whole law was meant to protect women, and now it's being used as a sword against them. So the, the irony there runs so deep. But, you know, we're seeing the, the pendulum swing back where people are thinking, you know, this has gone way too far. Um, you know, the, the court's ruling is, helps to protect female athletes and doctors, and, and I really hope that you know, the original intent of Title IX is returned to the podium, so to well, speak. Well, and, and, and literally, Jen, I, I know that I, I'm careful about trying not to overstate things, but in some ways this can be a, li- a life-and-death matter because I'm sure you saw the story within the last couple of weeks. You know, a bunch of young ladies go out to play a volleyball game against another team, and one of the members of the other team is a transgender individual, a biological man, and this guy spikes the volleyball and hits a young lady hard enough to give her lasting damage, send her to the hospital, you know, might have literally threatened her life. And so Lars, this is a, I, I saw I'm sorry, go ahead. the video. I, I, I watched it. I watched the video of this biological male smash this volleyball, and it just hits this girl's head, and she goes back. She goes down. And I physically recoiled when I saw that. I mean... This is not right. It really isn't. No, and and when you think about, I mean, some of the first cases that came up about this were out of Texas, where wrestling is a big sport, right? Then they say, okay, we've got this wrestler who maybe wasn't doing too well in the men's ranks. He transitions and becomes a woman, quote unquote, and he starts wrestling against women. And I think... What, what, what would you expect to happen in ordinary circumstances if somebody who grew up a biological male, an athletic biological male, starts wrestling with a woman, even a woman who's similar in size and weight to him because you have weight classes in that sport, and you say, well, he's, he's going he's gonna to flatten her on the floor. And you say, yeah, that's exactly right. what happens. And they start winning right and left. And also, I don't know if you follow MMA, but there was an MMA transgender fighter who was biological male, and he was pummeling these women. I mean, just beating the living crap out of these women. It's just painful to watch. I mean, this isn't this isn't modern feminism. This is this is a, a, an abolition of what 
the idea of feminism was supposed to be. I mean, for the women who support, you know, I agreeing that biological men can compete against women. I think it goes against the idea of what true original feminism was all about. Protecting women, defending women and allowing women to stand strong on their own, you know, without having to go into a locker room and bathroom and see, you know, male genitalia. (laughs) Well, and and that's been one of the big issues. And I saw one Vermont district did actually back down after they were telling these young women, yes, you do have to be in the locker room when this guy who's still a biological male by appearance uh, undresses in front of you. And and they're underage. I mean, we're talking about things that in other circumstances would actually be a, a crime. You know, to go up and right. deliberately expose yourself. And the thing I'm worried, if they want to do this, fine, then take all the gender rules out. Don't have men's and women's divisions anymore. Just say, let everybody compete. And if their answer is, well, then the guys are always going to win. You say, yes, exactly. and that's exactly what's, what's going to happen. So you're going to take Title IX and just toss it on the ash, ash heap of history and say, you women, you aren't going to be competing because you're going to lose. You know, the, the weakest man, the slowest man in running is faster than some of the fastest women in track and field. And it doesn't make any sense to go that way. Jen Cabani is an editor with The College Fix. And Jen, we always appreciate your perspective. I'll get to your calls in the next segment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. And this is First Amendment Friday, my favorite day of the week by far, because everybody can comment on whatever they want to talk about. We open up the phone lines and every subject is fair game. And as always, naysayers go to the head of the line. This segment of the show on the Radio Northwest Network is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. Our Twitter poll Is Elon Musk asking too much of his employees to work in what he calls a hardcore environment? I'd say, no, he's not asking too much. You can answer any way you like, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Yesterday, I asked you whether or not Northwest states should pull their investments in the oil business. I said no, and 83% of you said no. 17% of you said yes, though. So I wonder if those 17% still use fossil fuels in their own lives. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right find them at ultimatetruckservice.com to your calls now on this first amendment friday hey james thanks for listening on the network what's on your mind hey lars hey when they were pushing uh 114 there was a commercial with uh i believe it was the brother of the gentleman that was killed at the clackamas town center shooting yep and there's a big part of that story that they left out that really is is uh, kind of bothersome and a bit ironic. And uh, that is that there was a concealed handgun holder there that day. And because of that gentleman, uh, there was no more people killed that day. That is true. His name was is Nick Mealy. And, and Nick Mealy pulled out his gun to shoot. And even though when you're shooting a gun, whether you shoot guns or not, you have to look at the bat, what they call the backdrop, meaning if I'm about to shoot a bad guy, but there are innocent people behind the bad guy I might hit, then you don't shoot. And Nick Mealy made a considered decision not to pull the trigger. But the bad guy, by the accounts that I saw, uh, saw somebody pointing a gun at him, and he immediately stopped shooting people, which is a good thing, ran down one of the hallways at that shopping center, 
and blew his own brains out, which I thought was also a good call on his part because uh, he, he richly deserved to have his brains blown out, and the fact that he did it himself is a good thing. Can I give you another piece that also makes that, that man... I mean, I'm sorry for the man having lost a family member, okay? Uh, don't get me wrong on that. Do you know how the killer in that case got the rifle? Uh, was it a straw man purchase? No, he stole it. He stole uh, it from his roommate, but he stole the gun. It was not his to take. He was not given permission to take it. Now, how does a system that requires classes for somebody who wants to buy a gun, and then you have to go get a permit from the police, and then you can go buy a gun legally. How does that have any effect at all on a stolen gun? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Adding more, adding more laws to somebody that already is breaking laws isn't going to stop it. Exactly so. And, and But people find that argument too simple. But I say, I, you know, it, I will tell you this, James. I am deeply disappointed in the people in my former profession. I was a reporter for 20 years, and I kept my opinion out of my stories. But I, lo I love to ask tough questions. If I'd gone to one of those press conferences and they had said, hey, we got to pass this law because of things like Clackamas Town Center, first thing I would have done, because I'll tell you, there's a, maybe there's a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little odd in this. I love to ask questions that make people uncomfortable if they're legitimate. If I'd stood up, and I would have stood up and said, hey, wasn't the gun in Clackamas Town Center stolen? Well, yeah, it was. Well, how would that be, if, how would that, how would Measure 114's passage affect people stealing guns and then committing crimes? And they'd have had to say, well, it wouldn't. And then you hear the suicide argument. They use the argument that America has a high level of suicide and guns are the problem. Well, about two-thirds of the people who commit, uh, two-thirds of the deaths in America that are related in any way to firearms are suicides. And you say, see, that's it. Get rid of the guns, you get rid of the suicides. Do you know what I'd ask them? I'd say, which country has the highest level of suicide in, uh, among Western industrialized countries? And the answer is South Korea. Do you know that in South Korea, private ownership of guns is off limits? It's illegal. So you have a good-sized population that's very similar to America. I mean, their culture, their income. They're not a third-world country. They're not, uh, you know, they're they're not uh, Afghanistan. So they're they're very similar to us. They they have a different culture in some ways, but in many ways they're just another Western, modern Western, uh, Western industrialized country. And you say. And they have one of the highest suicide rates in the world, much higher than America, and they have no private gun ownership at all? And the answer is yes. And the question would be, doesn't that pretty well call the BS on your suicide argument? I mean, all of the arguments in favor of this law were, for the most part, BS, unfortunately. But there you are. Let's go to Jason. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Well, Lars... Um, I hear you talking a lot about the student loan debt relief thing from the government. And, yep. Uh, Illegal. I wanted to call you and tell you about a situation that I went through with a college. In You're going to have to do it quickly, Jason, because we're coming up to a hard break. Well, long story short, I went to this college. It went through all their classes, went through two and a half years of schooling. And when I applied for their medical imaging program, uh, x-ray technologist, I was immediately denied. And when I 
demanded to know why I wasn't accepted into the program after passing all their classes with A's and B's. Uh, for six months, they didn't want to tell me. And when I confronted my faculty advisor, he openly admitted to my face that they didn't take me because... Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on First Amendment Friday. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails, but if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I want to tackle something that has been tackled by our friend Elizabeth Hovde, uh, who is a research analyst and director of the Centers for Worker Rights and Healthcare at the Washington Policy Center. It is this crazy long-term care program that has been foisted upon the citizens, in this case, of the Evergreen State. And I think it's going to be a real crash and burn, but maybe Elizabeth will persuade me that they've made some changes to it and fix some of its major problems. Elizabeth, welcome back to the program. Hi, thanks for having me, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> You're not going to do that. You're going to tell me that the taxations shall go on and the beatings will continue until morale improves. I mean, where where do we Correct. stand now with this thing right now? All right, so they commissioned the state commissioned another actuarial study on the Washington CARES Fund, which is the program that was created by the long-term care law, because they wanted to see if it showed better solvency than it did the last time they did a study about it, (laughs) because solvency for the program is one of the many things that people are criticizing the fund for. It's not my biggest thing, but it's a big thing. Well, Um, and solvency meaning, are we taking in enough money to pay out the money we've promised to pay out? That's what it adds up to, isn't it? Correct. Correct. Yeah, they look at a 75-year time period, and so they're looking at from now between when the fund starts in 2023, when the collections start, to 2098. And what the state is saying and having a lot of headlines about is it's solvent now. It's suddenly solvent. Two years ago, it wasn't. We've been talking about it for two years, saying it's not, but now it is, and it looks like... um, some of the investment assumptions improved. The delay of the fund made it improve. Um, and the bottom line is the, the Washington Cares Fund is only maybe solvent for the projection period, and the state is overplaying the study. The studiers aren't. At the meeting where the study was presented, Milliman gave the needed cover-your-behind commentary when presenting the results. Well, what I mean, how in the world did they get it to where it makes sense. And, and this, I, I also feel it's incumbent on me to mention that even if it is solvent as it's currently proposed, Elizabeth, the cost of going into long-term care is right around, I think when I looked up the numbers for Washington State, it's like $13,000 a month if you need to go into some kind of long-term care. You say, okay, 13 a month. How long will the care program take care of me? And the answer is less than 90 days because then your maximum lifetime benefit 
has been paid out, which is 36000 And I, even a dummy like me can say 13000 a month times three months, that's 39000 In other words, it won't even cover you for 90 days, but somehow that's long-term care, less than 90 days. Right. And even at that, how are they taking in enough money in taxes and even invested smartly to be able to pay out those kinds of benefits? Where do they do the magic with the numbers? Have you been able to figure that out? Partly, and part of it's legit, but first of all, solvency is not the main thing here. Whether this is solvent or not, as you point out, it is not giving people, it should not be giving people people peace of mind that they're buying some kind of long-term care insurance. They're not. It's 36500 if you qualify to get the benefit. It won't be enough. I, I fear that we're telling people they should have peace of mind and making the situation even worse. But as to your question, the second question about how they're doing the new actuarial report, the numbers just changed, right? The wages are higher if you start 18 months later than you were going to the last time. Uh, So that's one of the factors. The investment assumptions from the state investment board were different. That helped the fund. Uh, One thing that didn't help the actuarial report, I can't say that word. One thing that didn't help the report was um, the number of opt-outs that came in against the fund. So that did uh, leave an impact. Explain what the opt-outs are, Elizabeth. Um, 500,000, nearly 500,000 people, I think it's at 476 right now opted to, opt, uh, to apply to opt out of this program and you could do that with a provision in the law that said if you had private long-term care insurance that was purchased before November 1st of uh, 2021 you could be out of the tax because you were already covered by another long-term insurance plan and and I, I even have to say that carefully because what the state is offering isn't a long-term insurance plan. What they are doing is they're taking, they're, they're cost-shifting. They're taking money from workers in a payroll tax to help them with their cost for Medicaid long-term care. And there's no guarantee you get money from this social program that they've created. There's uh, numerous ways you'll be ruled out for getting the money, so it's nothing like an insurance plan. They call it premiums when they're taking a tax out of your paycheck. Is that legal? Is it legal to call something a premium? You know, like you have premiums for life insurance and health insurance and fire insurance. Those are all premiums, but those under state law, you can't just go out and sell something as as a with a premium on it with some kind of promise. Uh, and then and then say, by the way, you don't qualify, but we took your money anyway, and you didn't pay it exactly. voluntarily. You just you 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 had it taken away from you, whether you like it or not. Right. That that's an excellent point. I haven't pursued that point, but it'd be interesting to see what the Office of Insurance Commissioner says. You can call a premium. I'm sure the industry would have a lot to say about ways in which this state program looks nothing like an insurance program and how it does not meet the qualifications for selling one. Well, and could you, look, insurance laws are tough, right? And they're, and the state insurance commissioner, I don't like Kreidler, but he's, right. he's actually told companies you can't sell insurance, like uh, protection right. for people who own guns, that if something goes wrong, he says, well, that's, that's like insuring yourself against committing a crime. 
That's assuming you did. So he will put limits on insurance. Um, and yet, in this case, the state is purporting to offer long-term care that isn't even 90 days at most. And I have a feeling it's going to end with some people who may suffer a, a terrible calamity of some kind. And they go off to long-term mm -hmm. care and their family thinks, oh, great, uh, mom or dad or whoever it happens to be is coming. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. And about 85 days later, they're going to, well, 75 days later, they're going to say in 10 days, your, your family member is out on the bricks. And they're going to say, what? They say, yeah, the money's all used up. Sorry. And, and you're going to get cases where people are going to get tossed out of long-term care when they still need it, aren't you? Yes, even if they qualify for it to begin with. I mean, there's numerous things, and there were also recommendations made at this recent commission meeting about long-term care trying to do better by people uh, because the law was so unfair and poorly written. Absolutely right. That's Elizabeth Hovde, who is a research analyst at the Washington Policy Center. Back in a moment, I'll get to phone calls on this First Amendment Friday. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, we got a couple of good pieces of news just in the last uh, few hours or so. Number one, do you remember Elizabeth Holmes? She is the woman who was once compared to Steve Jobs. Why, she's brilliant. She's a technology expert. No, it turns out she's a fraud artist. She was running a company called Theranos, which is a now-defunct blood testing company. She made all kinds of promises to all kinds of people, and they were apparently lies. She was convicted of fraud, and today she was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Good luck with the orange jail jumpsuit, Ms. Holmes. Second, a judge decided today, Judge Loretta Preska, decided today to order dozens of documents related to Jeffrey Epstein. And do I believe that Jeffrey Epstein hanged himself? No, I think somebody murdered Jeffrey Epstein because he has lots or had lots and lots of friends, political friends like Bill Clinton, uh, people like uh, Bill Gates. Uh, and uh, the fact is the guy was a first-class pervert, um, and he's dead now. I mean, one way or the other, whether he took his own life, which I don't believe, or was murdered, which I do believe, He's dead. And, of course, Ghislaine Maxwell, his madam, the woman who procured underage women, girls, for his sexual pleasure, uh, she is going to prison for 20 years. Well, Judge Loretta Preska today ordered dozens of documents related to Jeffrey Epstein's associates to be unsealed. They're part of a defamation case that was brought by one of his victims, Virginia Roberts Jiffrey, who brought the lawsuit against uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. 
and the judge overrode the objections from Tom Pritzker, the billionaire executive chairman of Hyatt Hotels. Pritzker claimed it would wrongfully harm his privacy and reputation if material related to him was made public. Well, guess what, Mr. Pritzker? It's going to be public. A total of 16 non-party does that is anonymous people, objected to the release of the files being made public, and half of them have already been dealt with by the federal court in New York. The latest batch relates to the remaining eight. Does 12, 28, 97, 107. I, if I sound happy, it's because when these pervert freaks that hooked up with Jeffrey Epstein and decided we're going to let this guy obtain underage girls for us to sexually abuse and commit crimes against. And apparently, you know, most of Jeffrey Epstein's friends and associates were very wealthy and very well connected politically. And as I said, Bill Clinton himself took 26 flights on what they called the Lolita Express. So would it surprise me a lot if the horny hick from Arkansas turned out to be one of those associates wouldn't surprise me one little bit and it couldn't happen to a nicer or more appropriate guy to your calls now on this first amendment friday at 866 hey lars let's go first to bill hey bill welcome to the program what's on your mind good afternoon lars um a couple of questions uh on 114 i've done what due diligence i'm able in that looked up uh read read through it it's it's some difficult reading but it would be very helpful on your program if when you have individuals like with the Oregon Firearms Federation, if they um, mention places as an example where an individual could donate to uh, a legal challenge to this, because obviously one is coming. That's my first comment. Okay, uh, and, and comment, just be- so people get that at the same time, the minute they have you know worked out some GoFundMe or some place to send those donations, I'll be glad to publicize that. I think that is in the works right now, but I think most of those organizations have not yet got that put together. But when it is, I'll be glad to let you know where you can send to, to ask for help or to, to help really out the effort. Lars. And then also, um, I've contacted at least uh, one of the advertisers on, on your program, eLegacy Law, and I'm looking for attorneys that are licensed to practice in Oregon and or Washington, and specifically about documenting high-capacity magazines that I've owned. Of course, everything I own is legal. I'm a concealed carry holder, have been for over 20 years. But uh, just some specifics on, on as an example, uh, uh, previously on your program, I had heard that they the, the burden of proof may now lie on individuals to prove no, it, that they it have does, these magazines. It does lie. It, it does lie on you. And again, I'm not a lawyer, but Bill, here's the difference. If, if you go out and shoot somebody in self-defense, that's called an affirmative defense. So it's illegal to shoot and kill somebody or shoot and hurt somebody but you can put forward as an affirmative defense that you did it in self-defense. But that's not an automatic out. The minute they put that as an affirmative defense in Measure 114, as I understand what the lawyers have said, they've said, if you get caught with a magazine, say a 14-round magazine, and the police were to arrest you, I don't think they're going to do a lot of this, but they probably will do some. And you say, well, I bought that before the ban. And they say, well, then it's up to you to go into court and prove that you owned that magazine before the ban, which is going to be extraordinarily hard. Nearly impossible, and lots of them are surplus magazines. I've been involved in the shooting sports since I was a young child. 
it, I, I, so documenting it, meaning I, I'd heard some things, just speculation on taking pictures, of course. But as you said, but, there's but, no uh, there's no serial numbers on magazines. It would be nearly impossible to prove well, that one impossible owned these magazines. Or, or meaningless, because you could walk into court. And they could say, we caught you with three uh, with one magazine that exceeds the limit. And you say, I bought it before the ban. They say, okay, prove to us that you bought this magazine before the ban. So you've taken the best high-res picture that uh, cell phones will take, and they're very good pictures. Oh. And you say, that's the magazine. You can't even prove that the magazine they took from you is that magazine. You say, well, it looks a lot like it. And you say, okay, great. But, but how do you prove a car is a car? By a VIN number, generally. How do you prove that the right. piece of property you own, you own? Well, because there's a legal description that is defined in the law, how properties are surveyed and identified and all that. Uh, with just about anything in the world, there's a way to prove this was the item. I don't know of a single way that, a, that even a picture or a document, if you had somebody come in as a professional witness, like a notary public, and say, I've examined 50 magazines owned by Bill, and he has pictures of the magazines. And I will attest that those magazines are the magazines in the picture. And if the police then say, well, show us that this magazine that we took from you is one of those. How do you prove that? Oh, sure. A prosecuting attorney would tear that apart in a second. They'd be laughable. They'd laugh in your face. Um, anyway, I'll let you continue on with your program. Keep up the good work. I met you years ago at an NRA auction, but uh, thank you again, well, Lars. Thank you for that as well. The sensible questions. Let's go to Jeff. Hey, Jeff, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Uh, so, yeah, the 114 deal. So uh, I'm a naysayer, I guess. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm all for anybody owning a, a, a gun, but, um, you know, it's, it's about regulation on my side. So you were talking earlier about like off-duty officers. You know, they just got to follow the law, right? They just got to have it locked they can't. up, right? How does uh, how does an officer who carries a Glock that holds seventeen rounds, when he gets off duty sure. and he gets in his car and he possesses a gun that is illegal for you to possess when you're not on duty, how does he drive home? Why is there a lock that can go in the trunk? It does not about lock. lock well, yeah, I, I guess I guess he could unload his gun even though off-duty officers yep. are encouraged strongly to carry a gun. So then so he, they could can have a ten, he could have a 10-round ten, ten mag. No, no, because the gun is cap- the gun. Well, he, I guess he could put a 10-round mag in it. I'm not sure how that would work and what the lawyers would say about it. But if you, do you know of any other constitutional? Well, that's, I guess uh, that's close- part of my, my point is, is a lot of this. I'll tell you what, I'm going to hold you over for the segment that's coming up in about 15 minutes. We have plenty of time to explore this. You sound like a great naysayer, so just hold that, and uh, if you don't mind, keep your powder dry. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. Always glad to get to your calls, and we'll get to more of those in the next segment. But I want to talk about Marxism and communism. Uh, We just had an election. And I imagine Mike Gonzalez has a couple of thoughts as the senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and author of the book BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, we didn't exactly get the kind of pushback on socialism and Marxism and all the rest of that on on the uh, Tuesday election that we expected. Well, actually, I have my own take on that, Lars. Hi, how are you? Uh, Happy Thanksgiving, by the way. Happy Thanksgiving Um, to you as well, sir. So I looked at the votes. Republicans did get five million more votes than Democrats. True, uh, and that, that's, that's not always the case. Uh, and 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 that was five percentage points. So so 
I think Republicans also scored big victories, for example, in Florida. They, they scored big victories in uh, in other. They, they they got the House. So yeah, was That's it true? Yeah, I mean there were some really bad candidates that ran for Senate positions. Well, you know, looking back on it, it's just surprising, unsurprising that they lost. Um, and the 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 majority in the House is slim. I grant you all that, but with Florida. We got a glimpse of the future, and here to the to the issues that you're talking about. Here's a candidate in Ron DeSantis that identifies these issues as the key issues, the cultural issues. He understands the cultural battles are a proxy for for his principles, and he fought hard on them. And he was very richly rewarded. He won by 20 points, which in Florida is unheard of. Well, and that's all good news, Mike. I just. I was hoping for something bigger and more. I was hoping for a solid majority in the House, which we got a bare majority. I was hoping for a solid majority in the Senate. We didn't get the majority at all. And I was hoping for a little more pushback at the local level, only because I see the country seeming to slide toward the socialism and Marxism that you warn about in your book. Yes, and in the paper that I just put out with Katie Gorka, who was a a great writing partner. Um, another uh, another uh, data point that I forgot to mention is that Moms for Liberty uh, said that they had, uh, they, 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 they flipped um, a lot of school uh, boards. That's very important in the fight against cultural Marxism. And and the, the, the fact that the Hispanic vote did swing 10 percentage points over 2018 in favor of conservatives uh, and that the Asian vote went even even more, 17 percentage points. And I'll tell you why I think that's encouraging with regards to the cultural Marxists. A big, a big um, instrument of the cultural Marxists is to first create these groups, and these are two groups that are not homogenous, that were created by the bureaucracy uh, at gunpoint almost when the activists said, you know, how to create these groups, and did in the 70s, Hispanics and Asian Americans. And and they were they were created to to fill their members with grievances against the United States, against American society and American culture. So they would fight really hard to change American culture. Well, it looks like both Hispanics and Asian Americans are, are saying, no, we don't want to to be cannon fodder in the in the culture wars. So that's also a good sign if you care about the cultural Marxism. See, I I do care about that. And in fact, you mentioned DeSantis. DeSantis also made a statement in the last 24 hours that I was really impressed by because it's not something you hear a lot of mainstream politicians talk about. But he said this World Economic Forum, you know, Klaus Schwab and this bunch of jokers uh, that say that we should have basically one big world government, give up national sovereignty, give up all that. DeSantis is actually talking about it and naming names. I mean, he talks about WEF and he talks about Schwab, and I think it's important that politicians actually start to speak about it. It ain't a conspiracy theory when they're actually saying that Klaus Schwab talks openly about how he's going to take over and restructure, or he and a bunch of other rich billionaires, some of them in public office, some not, uh, are going to basically restructure the way the world is run, and the rest of us are just going to, I guess, be serfs or, uh, or subjects. Yeah, no, that's, 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 those are excellent points in that DeSantis does have an act for identifying the right battles 
and then weighing in and acting and doing uh, good stuff, like, for example, what he did with Disney, what he did uh, uh, with the, um, uh, you know, passing a law that says you cannot sexualize children. Uh, you shouldn't be able to sexualize any students anyway. But all he said was you cannot sexualize children, uh, uh, you know, lower than third grade. You know, the idea that you could, you should be able to do so with fourth graders and fifth graders and sixth graders <laughs> is disgusting. <laughs> well, well, it is, it is. But, but, Mike, that may be where conservatives lose uh, on some of the battles because a lot of conservatives, and God bless them, but they'll say, I'm pro-life, I want all abortions banned. And I say, well, you're not likely to get that. Would you be, would you be willing to take a step in the right direction? You know, would you be willing to take the Mississippi step of 15 weeks or heartbeat at seven or, or eight weeks in, uh, in Texas? And no, no, I'm not settling for anything but, the, but, but everything I want. And whereas the, the liberals tend to approach things by saying, let's do this through creeping incrementalism and just incrementally take over an issue. And they seem to have a whole lot more luck doing it that way or success doing it that way, not luck. Uh, and conservatives well, sometimes reject that, saying, no, it's all or nothing. They did that with the same-sex marriage, incrementalism, but not with the sexualization of children. With this one, they have, go, they have gone, you know, a uh, whole hog into sexualizing, sexualizing children. And they've done it in a way that they, don't, they haven't tried to convince anyone about it, because it's very difficult to convince people about it. They said, no, we're going to do it. And if you're against it, we're going to cancel you. We're going to call you a, 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 a transphobe. And we're going to, you know, you're going to be fired from your job. And you're going to be taken out of, of Twitter and social media. So, so I think the left has left incrementalism. Uh, I, I, my view of this, the sex and racial issues, and these are it's not about race. It's not about sex. It's about transforming the country. It's the quiet revolution that is taking place. Uh, they realized the Marxists did a few years ago that in a country like the United States, you, you don't have a, a bloody revolution in which, in which uh, the proletariat kills the bourgeois, rapes his wife and his daughter, and, and, and takes away everything. That you have to do it incrementally through, uh, by, by indoctrination and by infiltrating the culture. Uh, and then with also with a little bit of violence, like we saw with the 2020 BLM riots, in which you know we you had 630 riots and, and, and the cities burned. Uh, uh, so I think that, the, that this is the so 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 I, I just a final thing on this to put a button on it. Politicians who are skittish about talking about race issues or, or sex issues will not be rewarded by the voters. I think Glenn Youngkin and Rod DeSantis who took these issues head-on, were rewarded, and, and, and they, they, it, it, the model is set. Well, I think you're right about that. I'm talking to Mike Gonzalez, the author of BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. And the other guy who preceded them, of course, was Donald Trump, who said, I'm going to have a law against trafficking, sex trafficking of kids, which a lot of us thought, well, that makes sense. you know. And, and he got almost no accolades for it from the cultural left or the political left or the media left. 
didn't say, hey, look, a, a president actually signed a law, you know, that's going to crack down on sex trafficking of children. No, I don't think the left wants to talk about that. And I think there are reasons they don't want to talk about it. That's Mike Gonzalez, senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the author of BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike, it's always a pleasure. When we come back, I'll get to your phone calls and your emails and the issues of the day. If you want to call, it's 866-HEY-LARS. Email talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, naysayers go to the head of the line on the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. And I don't do this very often, but Jeff called in as a naysayer. And he said there were a bunch of things he wanted to hit, and we were close to the break, so I've I've held him over. Hey, Jeff, welcome back as a naysayer. Um, would you? Where do you want to start with Measure One Fourteen? Because I didn't honestly think I was going to get a naysayer saying it makes sense that <laughs> I should have to get a permit to exercise a constitutional right. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, thanks for taking the call again. Um, so I guess the, the the whole deal with the police officer, when I, and and I thought about it more. In the law, it says, you know, if it has to do with his official, not with their official duty, yeah. then um, th- then they can carry it. So if, if yeah, but that but that's the flaw. Always be armed that way. Then, but Jeff, then, hold on, hold can... on. That's that's the flaw. When a police officer is off, he's encouraged by his boss to carry a gun. There is no okay. absolute requirement. But you know, his boss says, "Hey, you should have a gun with you all the time." Uh, or most of the time, sure. in case you as an officer encounter something going wrong, you don't go, well, I'm not on shift. I'm not clocked in. It's not my job. Absolutely. Officers jump into things all the time. They did in Parkland, Florida, as you might remember, a couple of years ago. There was an off-duty yep. cop who was, a, who was a coach, and he ran toward the sound of gunfire. What does the cop do who's told the gun you carry at work is illegal for you to even possess off-duty? Well, and, it, and it's not the gun, right? It's the magazine. Okay. Well, okay. So uh, he can carry the gun with one bullet in it, like Barney Fife, but he's not allowed with, to have a magazine ten. in it. With, with Good ten. Plan. With ten. <laughs> he can have ten in well, there. No, no, because uh, no. If you read the law, and I, I read the thing way back when they first introduced it. I read it again a couple of weekends ago because I want to make sure. I was, it says any magazine capable of holding more than ten. And that's one of the rubs, sure. is that if, if you say, well, sure. I have a 14-round magazine, but I only put 10 rounds in it, so I'm legal. No, you're not. The magazine is... No, I and understand even, that. Even if the mag that. is empty, it, you are breaking the law by possessing it. I understand that. Uh, the, the, the fact is, though, it's not by possession. It's if it's open, right? So if it's not locked away, then, then you're breaking the law. So if he exchanges... I keep saying he, but if the, the officer exchanges the... Uh, magazine for uh, a ten or less when he's off when they're off duty, then uh, they're they're following the law. But do you uh, realize how bizarre this is, Jeff? So let's take an officer. You know, Joe OSP is our officer. He gets mm-hmm. off duty. Mm-hmm. He's done with his shift. He gets in either his car or takes his patrol car home, and he's driving home. Mm-hmm. And he has followed Measure One Fourteen. He's taken the magazine out of his gun taken all the bullets out of it, put it in one locked box, and locked it up in his trunk. Then he takes his gun and puts it in another locked box and puts it in his trunk, and then he goes to drive home. And he sees a bank robber or you know somebody who's assaulting a person with a gun. Sure. And he says, hey, guys, sure. can you hold up a second while I go to my trunk, unlock the trunk, 
open up the two lock boxes, well, see, put bullets back in the gun, see, but, and then I'm going to come out and respond. Is, is he can he can have the gun, and I'm all for people having concealed carries. You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to change people's. Well, you just made a whole bunch I'm of them illegal with, with Measure 114 why, that I take it you voted, I voted for. the way I voted, right? Did you vote and, for it? And so I voted yes for 114. Okay. So uh, you want now? Hold on, just so I understand, because we've talked about the cops a lot. Do you know of any other constitutional right that you have to get a permit to exercise, like a permit to own a Bible and, and believe in Jesus Christ? You know, I, I was thinking about that as I was waiting uh, for the second round here. And no, you're right. I, I'm not disagreeing with the, um, with the legalities uh, or the potential issues of the legality of the law. My, the reason I voted yes for this is because I do not personally understand the need for more than 10 rounds in a gun. Hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. Jeff, let's let's back up a second. We're talking about the Second Amendment. Now, do you need to be on the phone talking to me right now, sharing your ideas? No, but I appreciate it. (laughs) Okay, and I, I appreciate you calling. But when we talk about constitutional rights, why does somebody have to explain need? I don't know if you go to church or not. But would you have to, if one of your friends said, why do you need to go to church every Sunday? You wouldn't have, you wouldn't say, well, isn't about, I have a right to practice my religion, right? Sure. So why do you have to explain need? I I, I am not, I'm not disagreeing with that, that this will go to the courts. And and in fact, it may be uh, striked down. No, no, it probably will. But Jeff, Jeff, think about this for a moment. I would. I would like to live in a society in which there are not the ease of capability for folks to obtain high-capacity uh, magazines. What is high-capacity? Uh, no, Jeff, Jeff, hold on. What's high-capacity? Well, the, the way it was— Is it more way, than one? Sure, the, way that it was, the way that it was laid out in this particular bill, it made sense to me. Said, yeah, okay, but no Jeff, 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 can I understand? Can I, help, help me out with this, though, Jeff. If somebody decides to go and commit a crime, they go to a school or a workplace and they want to shoot a bunch of people, do you think that having either 10-round magazines or 30-round no, magazines... carry more magazines. Those right, and they, magazines. and they will change them very quick. So, what, so you voted for something that doesn't change the situation. It actually makes it harder. So a young woman who breaks up with her jackass boyfriend because he beats on her, and she goes and gets a piece of paper, a restraining order... So you can't beat on me anymore. He said, well, I'm still coming to your house every night. So she says, I want to go get right. a gun. And she goes down to the police station. They say, I'm sorry, miss. We understand you might get killed tonight or tomorrow night or next week. You're, you're going to need to go take this class. And then once you've taken the class, you come back to us and get on your knees and ask for a permit and then pay a bunch of money. And then maybe we'll give you a permit in a week or two or three. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. 
view the videos, and then let the 1031 Exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. And then you can go and shop for a gun. And if you end up dead in the meantime, we're really, really sorry, but this is all about gun safety. That's the ridiculous nature. Jeff, great naysayer. Thank you. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.